Welcome to the Impact Room, brought to you by Philanthropy Age and me, Maisa Jalbout. Step inside to hear stories of success, failure, and impact from people dedicated to solving global development challenges. This is a space to connect people and ideas that make a real difference to our world. More than 30 people have drowned in the English Channel in the biggest loss of life involving migrants using small boats to cross to the UK from France. The conflict is raging. Families lose everything because of the shelling, the fighting, the bombing. I'm truly shocked. We have here a displaced population fleeing after having gone through the most horrifying violence. Venezuelans are trying to rebuild their lives in neighboring countries. They are trying to find a way to provide for their families. Worldwide, more than 82 million people have been forced to flee their homes due to violence, conflict, natural disasters, and persecution. Currently, close to 1% of the world's men, women, and children are either displaced within their country, seeking asylum, or a refugee. The numbers are enormous and only likely to rise in step with the growing incidence of war, failing states, and the climate crisis. Behind the headlines and statistics about refugees are real people, human beings uprooted from what they know, their families torn apart, relegated to the fringes of society. There are also refugees who are granted asylum in a new country and have a chance to rebuild their lives. I am one of them. I was born a refugee in Lebanon, and it was only when I was 16 that my family was able to start afresh in Canada. There, I received an excellent education and went on to a career in international development. Now, as a Canadian citizen, I have free movement around the world, but I still identify as a former refugee. Joining me today to discuss their own experience of being a refugee and to unpack some of the complexities that the label both assumes and implies are two remarkable young people. Zarlasht Halamzai was born in Soviet-occupied Afghanistan in 1982. She left when she was 11 years old, and after four years traveling overland, her family finally settled in the UK, where she is now a citizen. In 2016, Zarlasht co-founded the Refugee Trauma Initiative to provide psychosocial support to asylum seekers and refugees arriving in Greece. Zarlash has a master's degree in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy from Oxford University and in 2018 was selected as an Obama Foundation Fellow. Also joining us today is Abdullahi Alim, who was born in war-torn Somalia in 1992. He was six years old when his family were granted asylum in Australia, where he went on to be named a 2017 Young Australian of the Year finalist. A recipient of the Queen Elizabeth Young Leaders Award, Abdullahi is currently based in Geneva, where he works for the World Economic Forum, overseeing the Davos Lab, a youth-led initiative, and the Africa and Middle East Global Shapers community. Welcome to the Impact Room, Abdullahi and Zarlasht. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. I'd like to start by asking you each to share an outline of your journey, where it began, and how you got to where you are today. Zarla, shall we start with you? So I was born in Kabul just as the Soviet war was beginning to take traction. And I was born into a very ordinary family. My mother was a teacher. My dad was a civil servant. And, you know, they came from a family that had very normal, ordinary aspirations. They wanted to build a family, build a career, 
stay in the, within their community, but the war in Afghanistan continued to get worse and worse and worse until in the early 90s when the Soviet government in Afghanistan collapsed and the and Afghanistan descended into a civil war. My parents were forced to make a decision to leave our home. So we fleed um, in, in very, very difficult circumstances from Kabul and ended up on the road for four years before we were able to seek asylum in the UK. I arrived in the UK when I was 15 years old. I didn't speak a word of English. I missed a huge part of my education. And we began this journey of trying to settle in and integrate into a new culture and learn a new language. And, you know, it was a really difficult experience. We experienced lots of prejudice. We experienced racism when we arrived in the UK. And when I was getting my education in this country, I really wanted to work in something that addressed the kind of issues that I'd experienced both as a refugee but also as as a person who had arrived in a new country without any social networks without any kind of support system so I've spent most of my career working in the education sector either with marginalized communities and more recently in the last nine years working with refugees. Thanks for sharing that. And Abdullahi, tell us about your experiences of leaving Somalia and and beginning again in Australia. So I was born in 92, and I think under what was a triple whammy of sorts. So it was the time in which the state collapsed. It was the same time in which pockets of East Africa were declared, having gone through a famine. And of course, it was a vacuum that also then gave rise to fringe terrorist movements as well. And so I think it was a condition that was ripe for mass migration. And that was the case for my family as well. We moved from Somalia to neighboring Kenya, where much like most uh, most Somali migrants, we live as undocumented uh, migrants and undocumented urban refugees. Uh, some years later, we were given, I think, the one in a million shot of uh, of being granted asylum in Australia. And really, I think the average refugee, particularly those in our circumstance, waits about 16 years before they get their chance of asylum. And so for us to get it six years was really a miracle. And so we moved to Australia in 1998, and we were eventually granted uh, citizenship a couple of years later in 2000. However, I don't think the narrative was as linear, nor was my experience as such. A year after I was granted citizenship, was probably one of the worst events of our you know, last two decades, which were the attacks in New York in September 11. As much as I would love to say I shifted from being a refugee to somebody who was a citizen, I think what was more likely the case in hindsight was we shifted from being asylum seekers to this very gray zone, which I sometimes refer to as being conditional Australians. We weren't technically fully recognized, although we had legal status, as being one of the same as the rest of the population. Uh, And at the same time, we were no longer asylum seekers. And I think the decades then came to bear were made up of years upon years in which my experience as a Somali, as as, as a black refugee, as a Muslim refugee, would often be the big talking point on primetime news networks, would often be the talking points of many populist candidates and would often become the talking points during political campaigns. And so in many ways, it felt like my existence, my dignity and that of my own family was often up for a referendum of sorts 
whether literally or even just symbolically. And so, yes, we did gain citizenship a few years into our asylum process in Australia. But unfortunately, as much as I would love to say, I went from being that to a full-fledged Australian. I think what I honestly became was a conditional Australian. That is, my existence was dependent on the larger majority, the larger Australian public's perspective on my existence in the country, whether they were for it for a certain moment or whether for whatever reason a certain event would happen and then the tides would turn against us, meaning that we were no longer as accepted uh, any longer. And so till today, even as somebody who's now, quote unquote, an expat living in Switzerland, I recognize that this is unfortunately the case for a lot of refugee populations. And I think one of the saddest things I can say as somebody who works at the World Economic Forum is if you really want to see globalization in today's world, go and see the similarity between refugee communities living in the West. We are contending with the exact same racial forces. We are contending with the exact same populist forces. We're contending with the exact same failed systems of migration, of housing, of policing, so on and so forth. And it's, it's tragic for me to say this, even as a recipient of the Young Australian of the Year Award, which is quite a large platform in Australia. But I was quite honest in my reflections as well to the large Australian public that as much as I'm a celebrated narrative now of a you know, young refugee who made it in this country and who sought the benefits of education, I also need to be truly, truly honest about my experience and the experience of so many other refugees in the West, which unfortunately makes it such that we're not truly fully integrated even 20 years into our migration story. Abdullahi, thanks so much for sharing that uh, with us right off the bat. I want to come back to Zara Lesh and ask her if this resonates with her experience, if she feels similarly. And then I want to come back to this idea of, of citizenship and what does it mean for you today and how you identify with your experience as, as a refugee. So Zara Lesh, first, what do you think of what Abdullahi just shared? Was that similar to your experience in some ways? Absolutely. I So much of what Abdullahi said resonates with my experience. And, you know, I have three brothers and, and their experience of uh, integrating into the UK society after 9-11 was so different to mine, even though my whole family experienced a lot of prejudice. But for them, as young Muslim men, they were under so much pressure. They were stopped and searched all the time. And they've never felt a sense of citizenship. They've never really felt safe in, in the UK the same way that, for example, I do, because I, I don't have those experiences. Coming from somewhere like Afghanistan, I've never really felt fully integrated in the UK. And it's not because I don't feel at home here or I don't feel invested in, in the country. I think it's very much the political narrative, the media narrative around people, um, around refugees, people of color and how they treated and this idea of conditional you know citizenship really resonates with me because it is you know I do feel that my status in the country very much depends on public opinion and that can shift I I was horrified when the government here started stripping citizenships from people who were born in this country Shamima Begum is the, the example I want to mention here. Who, she went to Syria and married an ISIS fighter, which is, you know, obviously a, a horrific thing to do. But at the same time, it feels that because of who she is and the color of her skin, she didn't even have the opportunity to be tried within the justice and criminal system in this country. She was, you know, her citizenship was taken away, and 
you know, that really shook me actually, because I thought, okay, you know, I'm not like the rest of the Brits here, you know, that my citizenship, my status in this country is completely conditional on what the public and media narrative is. And everything that Abdullah said about, you know, the broken immigration system, the, you know, how refugees are treated, the housing, you know, all the kind of all these challenges that you have to overcome is is completely true in the UK and and everything that my family experienced. The other thing I really want to mention is, you know, I was very lucky to have very good education. I was selected for an Obama fellowship. All of these different things were amazing. But at the same time, I often feel in conversations that you kind of get singled out, you know, as this one good refugee and that the respect or whatever that you get is dependent on you just striving really hard. There are other people who just live ordinary lives that, you know, that, that this idea of like good immigrant and bad immigrant really, really um, is, I think, toxic and really affects people. And I, and I don't really like sometimes when people say to me, oh, but you, you know, you're different, you know, you've done these things. And those are the kind of people that we want in our country. I think that's also really horrible. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. This is a time where we're seeing a wave of increasingly right-wing rhetoric in Europe, the U.S., and, and elsewhere. Refugees are intruders or you know, where policy and borders are tightening to keep those seeking asylum out. At the same time, we see a celebration of what you are calling the, you know, the good refugee, those refugees who rise from incredibly difficult beginnings to become surgeons, Olympians, or to otherwise leave their mark on society. In this framing, you're both what the media would call good refugees, a concept that I feel is very problematic, and you've alluded to it. Can I ask how you feel about that as a label? Um, You started, but dig in a bit more, and perhaps we can start with you, Abdullahi. Do you recognize this concept of good and bad refugees, and what are your thoughts on it? I absolutely do. And in fact, it's a thought that hit me particularly hard uh, earlier this year when I was in um, when I was in isolation. I think as often as we are lauded as being examples and prototypes to share to other refugee communities, I think Zalash, this might also be your experience, but it's certainly mine, which is we're often presented as here's the case study of what you can be to other members of our communities. And I can say for every one of us, there are 100 times more who are simply falling through the cracks and not because they are any less able. It's just because the system does not set up people for success in the ways that perhaps our current standing, you know, in our workplaces or in the world that we're in right now might suggest. And so I often tell people, I appreciate the comments. I appreciate the feedback, but please recognize I am not the norm. In fact, I am anything but that. I'm a very, very extreme exception. I could show you every other example in my own immediate household, in my immediate first line of cousins in my immediate Somali community in different parts of the West, which do not represent any bit of that. I think the danger is we make the exception the norm in ways that blind us to the reality. And I think there is no liberation in the concept of the good refugee. The good refugee is a narrative that exists to make certain segments of our larger population feel a certain way, feel good, feel accomplished in, for example, yes, we actually were able to operationalize some of our national values around equality and mateship. And I think by internalizing that narrative, I risk coming to a place where I'm not being authentic to the true experience of migrants, specifically in Australia. And so I often tell people, 
the minute you accept this prototype, you also have to recognize what you are shedding off is so much of your truth, so much of the reality, so much of what actually accounts for the success or lack thereof of our own communities. You mentioned that you are the exception in your family, in your community. What is it that you think makes you an exception and that people see you as that? I think it's the examples of success in school. I think it's having been involved in a large organization in Australia, straight out of university, having won awards, having been platformed in national media, now eventually working for the World Economic Forum. Things of this persuasion, I think people tend to appreciate this as the example of the successful refugee. And as much as it gives me great assurance to know that I'm doing something right, I also want to make sure that people don't get betrayed by my own experience. It is certainly not the norm. I can give you hundreds of stories from my community, from my own immediate family, of the trajectories of young refugees that simply did not end up that way. And they are the norm, not me. It's those who, under the weight of just being in environments where the education system doesn't necessarily give them as much of a chance. Going into a workforce, a workplace that doesn't necessarily cater to the specific needs of certain communities, or just under the weight of far larger forms of trauma than, for example, that I had to endure because I came quite young uh, to Australia. Those experiences, those uh, lives that surround our communities, the minute I become the narrative, the minute my success becomes labeled the norm, we actually wash away all those stories, all those lived experiences, and we almost negate them as if they're not real. And so I honestly feel I have the responsibility to say, but don't let my award convince you into thinking that this is anything but the exception, because it really is just that. Fair and well said. Continuing with this good refugee theme, Zarlasht, I want to ask you your opinion. You wrote very eloquently in an article for The Guardian describing the difficult sensation of feeling you had to be joyful enough to deserve your new life. Do you still feel that burden? I think the feeling of displacement um, takes a really long time to shift. Um, and just, I, I want to say something about this idea of being the exception or the rule. One of the things I really want to mention, like the reason a, a lot of refugees, immigrants, and people of color don't end up doing things like that actually has nothing to do with ability or having something to say. These places, these you know, doing things like this is, is, is very closely guarded and people who get in, you know, get in because they have a network. And, and I often have the feeling that the, the reason I'm being platformed is partly because there is a need to continue the narrative of good refugees. So, you know, they sort of let one person in and so they can have this narrative but actually the rest of the platforms and the rest of the space is very, very closely guarded. You know, I wrote in The Guardian of, about what it was like to come to the UK because, you know, I think people see the images in the news about Syria and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and places like that. But actually the experience of arriving in a new country and what it takes to make a new life is very, very misunderstood. People don't really know what it takes to learn a new language and try and fit in and find a community in a new place try and understand what cultural references mean and all of these things are not 
just important because of the need to feel safe in community but these are you know social capital like how you speak you know um what you know the kind of the movies that you've seen the mu- music that you've listened to all these things give you access to society it really takes quite a lot of emotional energy to to catch up with people who were born here it, it, if, if you can't really do that, a lot of doors are shut. Um, me and my siblings, because we were younger, um, we were able to kind of do that successfully. My parents and people of their generation, they, they, they haven't been able to do that. So they're still isolated. They're still dealing with all of the things that I described in that article of being in a different country, having a passport, but not really being part of the community. There's a lot of kind of political decisions made in the UK in the last 20 years that put even more barriers for people, like cutting funding for English as a second language teaching, cutting funding for clubs and places where people could go and join a community. All of that means that people like my parents are unable to integrate and to access society and community in the way that they need to. In many ways, when I'm thinking back to my own experience and my parents and how much difficulty they had and still have in in feeling that sense of belonging. And it's very much what you said. A lot of it is based on policy decisions, but also because they themselves feel that this is an experience that they must go through and are sacrificing sort of their own comfort for their children, Right. You know, they, they deprioritize their own needs and their own identity so that you can flourish. Did you feel your parents did that for you as well? Yeah. And, and I feel I have to say, you know, we're being really open in, in, in this conversation. I feel really guilty about it because my parents did do that. It is it's, it's exactly what they did. They were both incredibly active. You know, they're really passionate about what they did. My mom was an incredibly passionate teacher and she really instilled in us a sense of responsibility as you know a joy for learning and all of that and she gave all of that up and when they came here they really tried to make the best of the this awful situation you know they also had to reconcile with the fact that the reasons that they were displaced were political decisions that were made in countries like the UK and the US and you know Afghanistan is a country that has had interventions from all these different places and the reason people are displaced and the reason that people in Afghanistan are suffering is largely because of those interventions and then Afghan people become displaced and they come to the UK or they go to the US and then they vilified for leaving and trying to save their family and most of the people who do that vilifying either willfully ignore or they don't know about the fact that Afghans are leaving right now because of the peace deal that the U.S. signed with the Taliban and effectively handed over the country back to them. And now we're living in a situation where girls aren't allowed to go to school. So, of course, people are going to flee. And so they also had to reconcile with the fact that they were experiencing prejudice and racism here and being vilified for being refugees. But the reason they were refugees was because of foreign intervention. I just want to mentioned this one statistic, the war on terror displaced 37 million people in the last 20 years. There's no discussion, political kind of 
uh, arenas about how much responsibility needs to be borne by countries who wage the war on terror and displace that many people. Yeah, it, there's this massive disconnect from foreign policy to national and, and local policy and, and narrative. And yet you as as a former refugee must contend with that and must must move on. And it becomes very much a personal responsibility, as you said in your article, to be joyful, to be deserving, to work extra hard to prove to yourself and to everyone else that you were worthy of that opportunity to be granted uh, asylum, to become a citizen. How damaging or dangerous is this very polarizing narrative about good refugees versus bad refugees? How do you think it impacts on how policies are shaped and, and how the general public feels about and responds to refugees? I think the danger of this narrative, the good refugee versus the bad refugee, is that it allows for policies to be formed in ignorance. It allows for public opinion on refugees to be shaped without any real understanding of the real struggles that our communities have to endure. Even just in this discussion, honestly, my mind is racing because I'm thinking back to my earlier years. I think back to a particular example where I had convinced my mom and my sister to go to the Australia Day celebrations. After 15 minutes, we were on the same bus in the opposite direction going back home because what we were confronted with was a set of large white Australian men who were barking violently uh, at my mom, who had two children, one on each side. And I think that narrative and that particular experience, I should say, even as it seems like an oddity, I think it gives a particularly interesting and nuanced insight into the experiences of quote-unquote good refugees. Because by extension of me being labeled a good refugee in the Australian public's context, so too has my family. And by being the good refugee, it honestly wiped away all the forms of oppression that refugees and new arrival communities constantly have to endure with. I think back to the experience of my older sisters who went, unlike me, to a public school and had to contend with examples of bullying because they wore the hijab. And I think back to what that meant for my father to have to listen to that as they came back home, knowing that he too is going through similar situations as somebody who was driving a taxi and knowing that he had absolutely no capacity to help support two young people who are going through these experiences because he too is under the same boat. He too is contending with the same experience and he too has been forced into the situation of be joyful, be grateful, be what they want you to be because not everyone gets this opportunity. By being the good refugee, by honestly celebrating this narrative, I don't think people truly recognize how toxic it is in making the rest of the public truly ignorant to our experiences. And as a result, you have dysfunctional policies that are often run on good intentions and not necessarily the needs of our communities. And at the same time, the public discourse is often between what is usually, I, I, I'll give the example of Australia, a Murdoch-dominated press which vilifies refugees as terrorists, which positions us as one and the same as foreigners who are here to take people's jobs, who are here to perpetrate violence, so on and so forth. We're often between this trope and then this example of these isolated, very problematic experiences, which I honestly represent. 
of the good refugee, which gives us no capacity to have nuanced discussions. So for me, I think the good refugee industry, as I call it, needs to be unpacked and has to come to a point where we, where we say, yes, if the utility of this industry is to empower other refugees, fantastic. But let's also be honest, these narratives actually give very, very little recourse for the average refugee who is struggling to push through, for example, a nine to five because they have trauma that they're still unpacking, who are, are dealing with fractured family dynamics because not everybody comes with, with their entire families like myself. It's these stories, it's these accounts, it's these refugees who bear the brunt of the good refugee industry because they're the ones who honestly pay the true price. Zarlas, do you believe that it's media and public opinion driving this policy or the other way around? I think one feeds on, on the other. So because politicians are in a position of responsibility to, you know, to tell the truth, to uh, have nuanced discussions, to, you know, and they have a duty of care to people that are vulnerable. For the past 10 years, there's been this uh, incredible rise in Europe and elsewhere about with, you know, with racist rhetoric towards refugees and and it's paid off for a lot of politicians. You know, they're winning elections off the back of vilifying Syrians and Afghans and instituting very racist, xenophobic and hostile policies. And in the UK, the government has made, you know, has committed to taking a certain number of Afghan refugees whilst at the same time deporting anyone that is crossing the channel or you know, treating them totally differently. In Greece, you have a government that is essentially turning refugee camps into detention centers and continues to deny the right for asylum. And, you know, there are countless examples like this. So I think the politicians bear a huge amount of responsibility in propagating this narrative. You know, you're in a situation where the public, you know, the media takes that and amplifies it and then the public feeds off of that and then it's a constant kind of loop where you know the the narrative is getting bigger and bigger and in terms of the good refugee I think what I really want to say is that you know the good refugee doesn't need to be somebody who's you know won awards or or anything like that I think there's tons of refugees do a lot for the communities and the countries that they come into you know they put in um, a lot in the, in terms of economics, you know, they they economically productive, they start businesses. This is you know this is also incredible success because they've come in with nothing, and they've managed to settle down to build good lives. So I think it's sort of expanding the narrative of what it means to be a good refugee and kind of including all of the different experiences that people come in, and part of that is also including the, the negative experiences of, you know, how badly people are treated and, you know, how they deal with that. And do you have a sense of frustration around the fact that there isn't more outrage, there isn't more camaraderie with people like yourselves who are trying to change narrative around this? I mean, why aren't people more outraged about what's happening in Greece in, in those refugee camps turned into prisons or what we're seeing happen in the Mediterranean seas? I mean, for countries that, you know, are largely holding up 
policies that are meant to, you know, protect people, are upholding human rights. Why isn't there more solidarity on this issue, in your opinion? I, I think, you know, sort of dealing with refugee issues, you know, the, the thing that I come up against all the time is racism, you know, and, and I don't, you know, we don't talk about that enough. And about how, you know, a lot of the policies and, and, and the way that the public reacts and the way that the governments deal with refugees is a lot to do with racism and colonialism and how people from, you know, Middle East, people from countries like Somalia, people from countries like Afghanistan are perceived and treated in places like Europe and Australia. It's, it's sort of colonial hangover about how you know putting brown people into detention centers is still okay putting them in limbo situations where they're waiting for years and years and years to get their status and camps missing their education you know is still okay i mean i've heard people that work in the humanitarian sector saying well this is fine because you know where they come from is not that much better so i think there's a lot of you know, racism that's hundreds of years old that we're dealing with when we're dealing with refugee issues and the sense that, you know, what an Afghan deserves in terms of a normal life and recognition and validation of feeling and all of that is very different to what European can expect and deserves. I think that's where it stems from. So the outreach isn't that because I think the public is largely okay with it different standards for for different people. And also, perhaps, you know, we should recognize that most people are concerned with their, you know, day-to-day lives, with their economic and social challenges, and to a large extent, how a politician or a political party deals with international issues, including humanitarian crisis and refugee uh, challenges is directly correlated to what's happening inside the country. Uh, and I think that disconnect or or perhaps that direct correlation uh, is often uh, undermined um, and not necessarily uh, seen as, as clearly as it should be. I want to just shift the conversation a little bit to where you think your life changed as a refugee. I've heard you say that in many ways that you know you still feel like that you know refugee the person who doesn't yet fully belong or continuously has to work hard to feel like they do. I want to pinpoint or as much as you can any particular moments or opportunities that you feel changed your trajectory. Have there been any standout situations or people that have influenced you along the way? I'm interested in the good and the bad here. Abdullahi, can I start with you on this one? I think for me, my uh, trajectory changed, ironically, when I left Australia. So going to Australia and seeking asylum in Australia, the ability to disconnect from that experience only came to me when I had to, in fact, leave for work uh, now that I'm based in Switzerland. And I think the very privileged position of now actually being, quote-unquote, an expat and no longer, quote-unquote, a migrant uh, living in the West, I think gives me the perspective to look back uh, and realize it's, it's, it's no longer my experience, to be honest. And 
I don't say that just as if to suggest that there is a switch and that there always has been a switch where you can just go in and out to say, yep, I'm disconnecting my formative experiences from where I am now. Not, certainly not saying that. I think just the ability to literally be a 20-hour flight away from where our family eventually sought asylum, being able to assume this position of an expat in another part of the global north, I think honestly gave me the ability to step away from the suburbs that our communities typically live in, to step away from the schools that our, that our students uh, typically attend, and just to recognize that I no longer have to actually be under the brunt of this prototype, let's say, that's been built around me of who I am and who I am not. Having said that, there is nothing scalable about that trajectory. Forget leaving the country. Most refugees, and again, I'm speaking specifically now to my own immediate family, forget leaving the country. They haven't even left their own suburbs. And in fact, often those who have children also have children who live in those suburbs. That social mobility is very much stifled. And so I think for me, that experience became vividly clear when I was able to really, really step outside of it and have the privilege of being able to look at my own experience from the lens of somebody who no longer was considered a refugee or somebody who comes from a refugee background. In fact, when people ask me where I'm from in Switzerland, I say Australia. And there isn't any kind of baggage associated with that, which, you know, the same question asked of me by an Australian in Australia, of course, would come with, uh, with, with as well. I think that was a big formative experience for me. That's probably the first time I hear it expressed that way. And as you say, it's, you know, unfortunate, I think, for Australia that you feel this way. But I think that there is something that is so unique and you know pushes you to grow when you become that global citizen, when you have that distance between your experience as a refugee and becoming somebody who's working on international issues. Sarlest, were there a couple of moments that you want to share as extremely important moments in, in your life and how it has changed? What Abdul Haid said and feeling Australian or responding in that way as you did when you were in Switzerland. That really resonates with me because in 2012, I, I moved to Jordan. And honestly, I, I, yeah, I felt sort of more British than I had when I was in Britain. I felt being away from the UK gave me the space to kind of process what it meant to be British and how close I feel to this country as well with all its problems you know most of my life has been shaped by being in this country and so, so that that really resonates with me definitely you know kind of getting to where I am has been such a community effort and I've had so many different people along the way who have supported me you know starting in school I had a brilliant English as a second language teacher who really really helped me and would sit with me and help me learn the alphabet as a you know as a 15 year old to countless people at work in university who really took an interest and supported me to get to where I wanted to be and I think that part of it can be scalable because a large part of what those people did was help me feel safe and help me feel like I could have the aspirations that I did and work towards them. And parts of 
that sort of mentorship and support can be scaled. You know, it can be part of schools. It can be part of training teachers to help address the issues that they might see in their classrooms from, you know, refugee children to having policies that really takes into account the trauma and the disadvantage that refugee children come in with. I think that all can be done and it's not rocket science in a way you know you can do it in an scalable even a national way but it does require political will yeah let's stay with that theme for a little bit we talked about you know policy and politicians but often people and communities also want to help how can people help as individuals as philanthropists what are the pathways for influencing change, whether they're small or big. You began talking about some of those ideas, but can you kind of list some suggestions for different types of individuals and communities? So there's always things that can be done to support support refugees at a national level. I think advocacy to kind of push governments towards better policies towards refugees to move away from policies that create this hostile environment that's always really helpful so anyone that can play the advocacy role and you know add their voice both in in terms of a public discourse but also how you vote you know if you if you're voting in politicians that you know will institute xenophobic and hostile policies towards refugees then don't vote for them if you're a frontline worker like a teacher or a doctor or nurse you will inevitably come into contact with somebody who is displaced or um, is a migrant. And I think there's a lot that can be done to educate those people in those professions about the trauma that people go through, about their lived experience, the kind of challenges that they feel and how, you know, something that may seem really small, like fill in a form can be a huge kind of challenge for some of these families. So there's so much you can do to support people that you come into contact with by recognizing their day-to-day lived experience. I think in terms of philanthropy, one thing that I would like to see as a founder of a community organization is more investment in refugee-led interventions and interventions that put refugee leadership at their center. I think that's really important. Often what happens, especially in sort of emergency response or places like Greece, for example, is that there is definitely a place for large international NGOs, but they leave. And so what can be done is to to make sure that the services are sustained and ongoing and can support refugees in the long term is by investing in local community-based organizations that have the intention and the commitment to stay. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I'm a huge advocate for philanthropic entities investing in refugee-led initiatives and in community organizations that are there for the long term. Can't emphasize the importance of that enough. I can't let you both leave without asking you a question around how you see the future unfolding. Are you optimistic for the future for refugees? Do you feel the divides we see will deepen or do you feel we will see a change in narrative and migration policies and a more humane response? Abdullahi, can I start with you? Yeah, so I think, I think of course, we will have a lot more climate refugees, more than we've ever had in the past, in the next uh, coming decades. However, I definitely do see a rising consciousness 
in the public in support of refugees and asylum seekers, I think the narrative is becoming a lot more nuanced. And I think if there's any any remote good that has come out from being too far populist in the last five to ten years in the global north and, and having some sort of correction in most parts of it, is that we've been able to realize just the dangers of shifting that far to the extremes. And so I think, strangely enough, we will see more organized forms of citizenry in support of refugees and asylum seekers, even as we will have probably more migrants and more refugees as a result of the climate crisis and growing conflict. And I hope, and, and maybe this is short-sighted on my part, but I hope, I hope that some of the camaraderie that we've been able to see, even in small forms during this pandemic, will also not end with this pandemic. In fact, I hope it'll be something that will shape the ways in which people are able to empathize, actively support, and be proper allies uh, to marginalized communities, especially especially refugees. So I'm optimistic, uh, even despite perhaps some of the challenges ahead. Zarlast? I think the resource that, that can be used to make a better future, which is empathy, I think that is there within the public and within the communities that I've worked in. I think there's an enormous amount of goodwill towards refugees. What, what concerns me is climate change, what is in store for us in terms of the you know, disruption to day-to-day life, the kind of extreme weather that we're seeing and how, you know, how many people are going to be displaced as a result of that. But if we're able to um, leverage this empathy that I know exists within communities and turn it into collective actions to pressure the state and the European Union and the UN and all these different organizations to come up with humane policies with practical solutions that is about helping people rather than playing political games. I think you can have a better future, but without that collective action, without pushing those institutions to do better, I think the future, you know, I think we're going to see more of the same. So a call to action there to activate our empathy. Finally, to wrap up, do either of you have a message or thought you'd like to leave our listeners with? I would say it takes first the desire and intention to understand before we can solve. I think there are ample amount of resources led by and, and curated by organizations, one of which is our Lush Runs, which I think is a great starting point to understand the global migration crisis, the global refugee crisis, and how that shows up in our immediate communities. I think it really starts from that point of, uh, from that point of understanding. I think from there, then comes the empathy. And I think from there, it, it really requires each of us to be truly, truly patient and recognize that some of these opportunities, some of these uh, changes that we're looking to push they honestly take time and having the wherewithal to be able to withstand some of the counter narratives that come to bear some of the immediate challenges that might sometimes feel overwhelming for us as as allies who are trying to support i think it's just a case of being patient and being able to really really stick to your intention to be an ally uh, all the way throughout and i think the last one is specifically to refugees i say be the best version of yourself and recognize that you are already not only a good refugee, but a great refugee based purely on your survival. Any other narrative above and beyond that 
don't allow it to come to a point where it burdens you with expectations that you feel like are too unrealistic for you to live up to. Do the absolute best that you can and know that, of course, you have an entire generation before you. I think of my own, for example, ancestral line, which is shaped by this legacy of, of survival, this legacy of innovation, this legacy of being able to thrive even despite the oppression and challenges that we lived through. And know that that also is a force that resides within you too. Thank you very much. You really touched my heart with that, and I think you will touch a lot of people's hearts listening to this. Zarlash Halamazi and Abdullahi Alim, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Impact Room, brought to you by Philanthropy Age and hosted by me, Maisa Jalbout. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss forthcoming episodes. Please give us a rating where you get your podcast, and most importantly, tell your colleagues, friends, and family to check us out. For more about today's topic, the podcast and Philanthropy Age, please check the show notes or follow us on social media at Philanthropy Age or on my Twitter handle at Maisa Jalbout. Thank you for listening. <laughs>